church family, how are we doing? Morning. We're doing good today. This last week, we kicked off a new series called Missional Moments, and we went to Matthew chapter 25, where we, see, we saw Jesus uh, teaching through parables, where he said that ultimately, he is the master, and that each of us are servants to whom he has given his property to steward, his property being our time, our, our money, our gifts, talents, and abilities, and skills, our families, everything to our very own lives are things that God has given us that he will come back like the master and he will call us all to account for what we have done with what he gave us. And hopefully all of us are doing everything we can with all the time that he's given us, with all the resources, the relationships, and everything that he's given us, to say, Lord, here, I, here, here you go. I did the best that I could with what you gave me, pursuing your interests. And this week, as we consider all the things that God has given us, we look and consider that also one area of stewardship that the Lord has given us to be faithful is the area of parenting, that these kids that he's given us are really his. Now, if you're here this morning and you thought, oh, okay, the parenting sermon. Well, I'm an empty nester, so I guess I'll just look at Facebook or maybe review highlights of the Bucks winning last night in epic fashion. Okay, first service cheered a lot more on that, but that's good. You guys are holier than they, and that's why you don't care as much about that. Don't check out, uh, no matter what stage of life you might be in, there are plenty of biblical truths that, that will challenge all of us and minister to all of us today. So uh, whatever stage of life you, you're in, whether you've had kids and they're out of your house or you have kids now, or even if you have not yet had kids, there are things from today's message that are going to call all of us um, into glorifying God through uh, acting on what we've heard. So family discipleship. Uh, there are a couple of books that I love to recommend before we even get into the sermon today. Uh, a lot of my own values and views on how to raise kids or practice this family discipleship is based off of a lot of what I've seen in these two books. Uh, the first one is a book called Parenting, really original title there, uh, by Paul David Tripp. Incredible book. If you're a parent and you've got kids in the home, or if you're a grandparent and you have opportunity to have influence in your kids' lives, or if you're an adult who doesn't have kids but you have influence in the lives of other kids, whatever it might be, get this book and read it, 14 Gospel Principles That Can Radically Change Your Family. And just a little uh, side note, footnote, anytime you see Paul David Tripp on a book, I give it a thumbs up. Dude is an incredible pastor and author. Another book is called Family Discipleship, title of today's message, um, by Matt Chandler and Adam Griffin. This book is wonderful. Um, this book is actually a, a pretty thin book. It's not a big read, but uh, it teaches and inspires and equips and challenges. And the thing I love about this versus so many other parenting books uh, that are out there is this also has a lot of practical advice on ways that you can schedule out your week, ways that you can be practical in the way that you implement family discipleship in your home. So these two resources, this is actually a book that we give every family now that uh, 
when we dedicate them, uh, dedicate their children to the Lord, this is a book that we give and we just might start giving both. So maybe you just want to rededicate your kids and you can, I'm kidding. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. These are worthy investments in your home. So I'd encourage you to take advantage of them. Um, One of these books, Parenting, actually has something that I want to talk about today. One of the, in light of what we're talking about from Matthew chapter 25, that when we opened that, that parable last week, where the master entrusted to his servants his own possession, and we consider the children that God has given us, he's doing the exact same thing there. We tend to believe they're our kids and we want to raise them according to the things that we uh, want or we hope for or the aspirations that we might have for our kids. And sometimes we can forget that like our very own lives, our children are also given to us by the master for us to steward for his purposes. And so our children are not our own, just like we are not our own. They belong to the Lord. In fact, there's an excerpt out of this book that I want to read this morning. Um, Just to give you a a context or parameter, we're going to be reading from here to here. So buckle up about two minutes as we read through this. It's not a short little quote. And I was going to like teach the stuff that he says here, but I was like, he just wrote it so good. I'm just going to stand up here and read it for you. So Uh, Paul David Tripp, out of his book, Parenting, says this, Good parenting, which does what God intends it to do, begins with the radical and humbling recognition that our children don't actually belong to us. If there's any kids in the room, that doesn't mean you can go, ha ha, see, I'm out. No, that's not what it's saying. Rather, every child in every home Everywhere on the globe belongs to the one who created him or her. Children are God's possession. See, kids, gotcha. He cites Psalms 127.3 where it says, Children are a heritage from the Lord. And he goes on to say they're for his purpose. That means that his plans for parents, his plan for parents is that we would be his agents in the lives of these ones that have been formed into his image and entrusted to our care. So I'll pause right there. There's more reading, but he's contending and and positing that our children have been given to us by God, but they are God's, not ours. They're our kids, but they're really his kids. It'd be like if I went into my daughter's room and I said, hey girls, I want to hang a picture and I've got tools that are dangerous, so I need you girls to get out of the room. If they said to me, well, no, daddy, this is my room. I don't want to get out right now. I could say, Sorry, you're getting out right now like I asked because, yeah, this might be your room, but really it's mine. (laughs) Right? Like the things that our kids have that are theirs, they're theirs, but really they're not theirs. Like I can take any toy from my kids any minute that I want to. I can take their precious princess dresses away, which causes quite the storm in our house. I can uh, do whatever I want in their room with their room because that whole title of there is kind of a, a formality and is not an ultimate truth because really I'm the one who's paying for it, right? I'm the one who's got authority over that house. I'm the one who has power above the power of my daughters. And so therefore it's really mine. This is an example of what Paul David Tripp is saying here that really Our kids, like my daughter's perspective of their room, is not really ours. They are ours, but ultimately, 
their gods. Continuing on, he says the word that the Bible uses for this intermediary position is ambassador. It really is the perfect word for what God has called parents to be and do. The only thing an ambassador does if he's interested in keeping his job is to faithfully represent the message, methods, and character of the leader who has sent him. He is not free to think, speak, or act independently. Everything he does, every decision he makes, and every interaction he has must be shaped by this one question. What is the will and plan of the one who sent me? The ambassador does not represent his own interest. He is not pers- or, or his own perspective or his own power. He does everything as an ambassador or he has forgotten who he is and he will not be in his position for long. Parenting is ambassadorial work from beginning to end. It is not to be shaped and directed by personal interest, personal need, or cultural perspectives. Every parent everywhere is called to recognize that they have been put on the earth at a particular time and in a particular location to do one thing in the lives of their children. What's this one thing you ask? It is God's will. Well, here's what this means at a street level. Parenting is not first about what we want for our children or from our children, but about what God in his grace has planned to do through us in our children. To lose sight of this is to end up with a relationship with our children that at the foundational level is neither Christian nor true parenting because it has become more about our will and our way than about the will and way of our sovereign Savior, King. Amen. Paul David Tripp is trying to help us see that our kids are ours, but they're really not. They're his. And just like the five or the three servants who were given the three different measures of talents that we talked about last week, one of the things that God has given us in the family is a family, is children that are to be stewarded as ambassadors where we take our kids and go, Lord, what do you want me to do with these, your precious possession that you have entrusted me with? This changes the way that we approach our children. It's no longer that we're vicariously living through our kids because we were this close to going pro, but I'm sure my kids can. It's not that I didn't get to achieve so much and so I'm gonna make sure my kids do. I recognize my two daughters, Marley and Joey, are souls who will live for eternity somewhere. And there is therefore no thing in the lives of my daughters that I care about more than that they would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. This affects the conversations I have with them. This affects the things that I teach them. This affects the things that I allow them to be exposed to or the things I do not allow them to be exposed to. This affects the relationships I allow them to have. This affects the decision I make on where we send them to school. This affects the way that Katie and I parent our daughters in every way, being mindful. And this is something we have to fight because I forget it and I have to preach it to myself that they're not mine. And also this is something that parents enter into frequently with idolatry. We can idolize our kids and worship our kids really easy. And we can take joy in and relish them as we should. But if we're not careful, 
We can elevate these created, gracious gifts from God above the creator who gave them to us to steward and map our lives around them in a way where we're placing our hopes, our ambitions, our aspirations, our dreams upon them rather than going, Lord, what's your will? Lord, what do you want to do with these two or three or four or however many you might have in your bunch? And so we have to recognize we're simply ambassadors where we have one more thing that God has given us that is precious to us. But I think it's healthy to remind ourselves that the Lord actually loves our kids more than we do, right? Jesus loves our kids more than we do. That is a wonderful reassuring thing that it's hard for me to actually believe what I'm saying because man, do I love my girls. I love them so much. But it's a reassuring thing that when I think about how much I love my girls and know, man, the heavenly father loves my kids more than I ever could. And I'm a flawed father. I'm a sinner. And the heavenly father is not flawed. He is perfect and righteous and loves them in ways faithfully that I never could. See, when we recognize that we are ambassadors and trusted with these children, it leads us to be missional in our home. Remember our series, we're talking about being missional taking advantage of missional moments and living intentionally to impact others for eternity, being faithful with what God has given us. And so we come to the home. And when we recognize these truths, it causes us to be missional in our home. Dr. Bloom in the video that played right before the sermon, you saw Dr. Bloom and Valerie, who uh, one of the things that he read was from Deuteronomy chapter six. Go ahead and turn it in your Bibles there this morning. That's uh, the passage we're going to be reading from. That passage today is known as the Shema. In Hebrew culture, uh, in the modern Jewish culture, even to this day, as well as the Orthodox Jew, the Shema is this passage that they pray every single morning and every single evening. This is key and foundational to their lives and practices of devotion to faithfulness to God. And so this is something that they recite every single day, several times a day. And as we get into it, one of the first things you're going to see is the word, well, the first word, hear. That's where we get the word Shema. The Hebrew word there is Shema. And to us, we read here and we see, okay, that means allow sounds to come into our ear canal and let those sound waves and signals come to our brain where our brain interprets those sounds as words or as music or as symbols or whatever it might be, whatever sounds come in that we hear. That's the way we modern Westerners think of that word hear. But in the Israeli culture, especially the ancient Israel culture, the word hear was so much more than just hearing sounds or hearing words. When, when in the Old Testament, and even today, when they would say the word hear, like it does here, hear, O Israel, Shema, O Israel, it didn't mean just hear or listen, it meant hear and act. This is why you see Jesus condemning the Pharisees saying, you have ears but do not hear. Meaning, and, and, and several times we said, he who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit is saying. How often Jesus and the prophets over and over would say, hear. And if you read the book of, uh, the rest of this book of Deuteronomy, you would see over and over and over that word, hear. Shema, 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 which didn't mean just listen, but it meant to act on what you are hearing. 
Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is Deuteron the entire book of Deuteronomy essentially is three speeches that Moses gives under the unction of the Lord, under the commands and, and guidance of the Lord. These three speeches, it opens with some history of, of a refresher of, hey, God led us out of Egypt. God's taken us through the wilderness. God has shown his faithfulness over and over and over and over in all these ways. And then beyond that, not only is it that account, but then it tells some updated accounts of how God led them into the area that he was calling them into, the promised land, and about several battles that God gave them supernatural victory over the enemy as they were coming in to take over the land. And then, right as they're on the cusp of going into the promised land, one more time God says, now remember Moses, you can look, but you can't go in. And before I send the people in with Joshua, we're going to give these commands, all these stipulations, all the you must do this and you must not do this if you are to be in covenant with God. So God is giving all these commands throughout the book of Deuteronomy. And he starts with the Ten Commandments that he gave all the way back on Mount Sinai. And then after he cites the Ten Commandments, we get to where we are today, the Shema, to hear, O Israel. Let's look at it, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is a, a passage to say our God is the one. He's not saying our God is one. It's not a, a, a monotheistic statement. It's not theological in those indications. What he's saying right here is unlike the land that you're going into and the land that you came out of where the people worship multiple gods, the Lord our God is one. He is the God. This is an exclusive statement here to say that the Lord our God is one. And he goes on to say, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. As we go into the New Testament and there's the account where Jesus is talking to lots of different people. And in that crowd, there's Pharisees and Sadducees, these people who hated Jesus. And they're trying to trick him and say, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, well, that's easy, the greatest commandment. And he quotes Deuteronomy 6, this passage. He says, the greatest commandment is that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And then, of course, he would go on to say, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. He says that on, the, on these two commandments, all the law and the prophets hang. Jesus is saying that on the commandment to love God with everything you've got and to love your neighbor the way that you love yourself, if you're fulfilling those two commandments, you don't need all the other commandments necessarily to tell you how to please God, worship God, serve God. If you love him, you will live that way. If you love your neighbor, you don't need a rule to tell you not to covet your neighbor's things or don't cheat on your neighbor or don't steal from your neighbor or don't bear false witness that if you love God with everything you've got and if you love your neighbor as yourself, all the rest of the commands and the prophets hang on those two things. So Jesus, in that famous passage where he cites the greatest commandment, he's citing what we just read in Deuteronomy chapter 6. But notice he doesn't just say, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. He says, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. The command is personal and internal. See what's happening right here. God is giving the command through the mouth of Moses to his people saying the most important thing 
is that you love God. Now, I don't know about you, but loving my wife did not come out of a command. I love my wife because I met her, I got to know her, thought, wow, she's gorgeous, and her heart is even more gorgeous. I think I'll take that for the rest of my life if God would let me, and if she would let me. And praise God that he and she did. And so, therefore, I love my wife, and I serve her, and I fail at it, but I strive to love and serve my wife because of what I discovered in her and what I wanted from her to spend the rest of my life with her because of the treasure that I saw in her. And here we have God saying, this is the command that you love God. And he goes on to say that this command, these commands that I'm giving to you must be on your heart. And so there's this challenge, this obstacle here of this command knowing, hey, we're supposed to love God. This is commanded by God. And so what do we do? We just go, well, uh, okay, I love you. Like what if someone came up to you and said, I command you to love so-and-so? Okay. And we do have biblical command to love one another. And we do have biblical command to love others. But the way that we're being commanded to love God here in the Shema, is a heart level. It's not just a knowing this and therefore I'm going to choose to do it. There is that element. But the heart level matters. And if we continue on in the book of Deuteronomy, we're going to see tons and tons of laws and commands and stipulations for the covenant that Israel is to be with, uh, be in with God. And then if we got to around chapter 31, we're going to see God say through Moses, oh, and by the way, I know you're a stubborn people. I know you're rebellious. And so you're going to turn away from me. And even though I just commanded you all this stuff, even though I explicitly said, don't turn and worship false idols, I know you're going to do it. And when you do, I'm going to have to discipline you. I'm going to have to strike you. I'm going to have to scatter you. I'm going to do these things because I love you and because I am just. And then in the next chapter, we see God talking about repentance, that when these people come back to God, they get back into his blessing. And what we see here is the whole problem. We see here that God has required of us perfect, full devotion to him. And I'm nailing it. How about you? No. We're just like the Israelites, who if we read these commands, and we can see in these Old Testament accounts that when these commands are given, like love God with everything you got, it's just like when we're in the church service, or when we're at the conference, or when we read that awesome book, or when we hear that podcast that inspires us, and we're like, man, I want to give God everything I've got. Like, yes, Lord, forever, from now until I die, I'm yours. And we mean it. The problem is, if we have not repented of our sin, placed our faith in Jesus Christ and received the Holy Spirit where he comes in and changes our heart, we're just like the Israelites who are going, yeah, we're going to do it. And not having the power or ability within us to live and walk out long term. This is why, man, I remember growing up, I'm a pastor's kid, I've been in church my whole life. 
And I remember growing up going to youth camp after youth camp after youth retreat after youth retreat after pastor's conference with youth services and going to Christian school and chapel and youth rallies and all this stuff over and over. I rededicated my life over a hundred times and I know I'm not exaggerating. And every time, I mean it this time, God. I know, I know I've meant it before and, and I know I failed in this area again, but God, this time I mean it. And we get up after camp and we get up in front of the church and we talk about what happened at camp and man, God really touched me and God showed me this and we're not changing this time, we're not going back. And I feel like God was looking at me saying that the same way that he's looking at these Israelites and he's saying, that's cute. (laughs) You mean well. The problem is not knowing. The problem is do you have the new heart? The problem is a worship problem, not a knowledge problem. We all know. The opening chapters of Romans tell us That every person shows by the things that they deem right and wrong in their conscience. Their heart bears witness that they know right from wrong. We all know right from wrong. We all have the law of God written on our hearts whether we've heard it declared as such or not. That's the opening chapters of Romans that teach us that. So the problem is not a knowledge problem. The problem is a worship problem. What's in our heart? Deb, I'm going to pull an audible on you. I'm going to jump to the point that I wasn't supposed to get to till the end. This is a point from Paul David uh, Tripp's book. He says, you are parenting a worshiper. So it's important to remember that what rules your child's heart will control his behavior. Getting back to this whole parenting conversation, we have to acknowledge, one, we are worshipers and we're parenting worshipers. Now, a couple of months ago in our Uh, home improvement series where it's about family and about family discipleship. We talked about modeling. This is why the very first thing in the commandment, we're going to get to where the commandment teaches that we must teach our children and teach them in the way, teach them when we're out and about, teach them in the home. But before we get there, we have the heart issue of recognizing that we are worshipers. Every single person on this earth, every single person in this room, everyone I'm making eye contact with right now. Don't look at me, pastor. We are all worshipers. The question is not, are you or aren't you a worshiper? The question is, what has your affections of your heart? The question is, what is the object of your affections? What is the object of your worship. Every single person finds something in life that they deem paramount above all other things. It can be career and achievements and accomplishments. It can be money. It can be the opposite sex. It can be uh, uh, any, many, anything. Honestly, that's more that we see in the opening chapters of Romans, that mankind has worshiped creation rather than the creator, the maker of creation, who is to be forever praised. That this is what we do, born in sin, born with hearts that love selfishness, that look out for our own interests, born with sinful hearts, we by default worship creation. We look at the things that God has made and we go, wow, that's awesome. I love it and I give my devotion to it. 
rather than going, wow, that's incredible, and letting that roll our worship and affection up to the creator of the creation. We worship ourselves. We worship our spouses. We worship our kids. We worship our jobs. We worship our hobbies. We worship our favorite sports teams. We worship all sorts of good and gracious gifts from God that become idols when we give them the throne of our heart rather than letting God have the throne of our heart. And so, the first and most important thing in family discipleship is modeling. Because we want to abolish the phrase and the philosophy and ideology of do as I say, not as I do. Good luck with that ideology. Because your kids are going to see that you do from what you love. What is in your heart that you prioritize, that you love, that you worship ultimately. We're like, I don't worship those things. I'm not like coming to a service to talk about those things and sing about those things. But we map our lives around them. And oftentimes we can use this stuff to convince ourselves that we worship God or love God. We can do good things. We can go to church. We can read the Bible. We can pray and do all these things to try and convince ourselves that we really love God without even having our hearts change. What we've been reading from Deuteronomy is the covenant, the, the Old Testament, full of all these commands. But then in the prophet and the prophetic books of Ezekiel and Jeremiah, the prophets begin talking about a new covenant that would come. And they say, in this old covenant, we had laws and commands, but we had stony, stubborn hearts. This is what, if we went through Deuteronomy, we would see that over and over, especially chapter 31, where God is saying through Moses, you people are stubborn hearted. You're hard hearted. I mean, they walked through the Red Sea as on dry ground. I don't know about you guys, never done that. I've never gone out to Lake Michigan and walked through like I'm walking on dry ground. They experienced that. They saw the 10 plagues that God exacted on Egypt. They saw Moses strike a rock and water comes out of it. They saw God provide quail like crazy and manna and God do all these spectacular things and still over and over and over somehow after seeing all these things kept turning away from the Lord with their stubborn hearts, which is the problem. It's the issue. And if you want to raise kids that are going to love the Lord and serve the Lord and be faithful to the Lord, you can't do it without your own heart loving and delighting and being pleased in the Lord. Seeing Jesus as the treasure. You want your kids to treasure Jesus? You first got to find the treasure yourself. You can't lead them to the treasure you haven't found. You can't show them the pearl you haven't bought. The pearl of great price. And so all of us ought to look at this ambassadorial challenge and go, am I a faithful ambassador? Have I tasted and seen the Lord as good? Do I love the Lord with all my heart, all my soul, all my strength? I, I don't know. Do I? Well, let's look at your schedule. Let's look at our bank accounts. Let's look at our priorities. Those are going to be answers right there. And so we all have to evaluate. Why? Because what a lot of parents do is they go, hey, I've got kids now, and we want to raise good, upstanding citizens with good moral virtue, so let's start going to church and hope that the church can help us raise good kids. Not recognizing the single most important thing in the spiritual development of your kids is your home and your parenting. There's a sad statistic 
that 70% of kids who grow up in church get out of the house and leave the church. Now that's a very sad statistic and we should evaluate why, but the really the better question I think we should ask is, what happened to the 30% that stayed? Why did they stay? And by and large, this isn't a complete sweeping rule, but by and large, the metric is those who stayed faithful beyond are those whose family, whose parents intentionally discipled them all the days of their life. Or there's someone who grew up in a broken home that did not have that, who did not have intentional parents, but had someone else come alongside Someone who looked at them and go, I know they're not getting that at home, and so I'm going to bring them under my wing, and I'm going to provide that because they need that. Now, again, that's not a sweeping 100% thing, but it is, by and large, the single most important thing. And if I recognize that I'm an ambassador trusted with the lives, the souls of my daughters, then I care about nothing more than doing everything I can to hope that I can help set them up to be ready for the gospel. See, my daughters, as cute and precious as they are, they're a couple of sinners. Like me, like you, their hearts have not been made new by the Holy Spirit yet. They want, they long for selfish things. We're talking about how we raised worshipers, that Paul David Tripp quote, uh, you are parenting a worshiper, so it's important to remember that what rules your child's heart will control his behavior. If I'm honest, my oldest daughter, Marley, worships princesses. Now that's a strange way to put it, but my daughter's affections and priorities and delight and desires of what she wants to do and participate in is mapped around princesses. And so I'm mindful of that and I recognize that and I am doing what I can. My, my, Katie and I are doing everything we can to hopefully try and plant seed here, plant seed here, plant seed here, plant seed here to try and teach and show, yeah, princesses are great, they're fun, but Jesus is better. And Jesus created princesses. <laughs> Jesus is the author of princesshood or whatever it might, I don't know, I'm gonna make up words today. Jesus is the giver of the role of princess. Jesus is the creator of every princess, every real princess. And so to try and take what my daughter loves and see if we can turn that affection up to Jesus, also recognizing, Katie and I, we personally are probably not going to allow our daughters to get baptized until they're at an age where I can tell that they understand their depravity and their need for a savior. And to where I can see in them a broken heart over their sin and a repentance of that sin, I'm not interested in sitting with them and having them repeat a prayer after me just so I can feel better about it. I don't wanna just sit down and go, all right, sweetie, Jesus is God and we need to believe in him so if you believe in him and you wanna invite him into your heart, then pray this prayer after me. I could do that to try and make myself feel better and feel like, okay, my daughter is a Christian now, so she's gonna go to heaven. I am concerned about her eternity more than just giving myself a false assurance of her salvation to where I'm looking more for fruit. I wanna ask myself, is my daughter at a place where she can cognitively understand her need for a savior 
I'm waiting for the moment when my daughter or daughters are frustrated with their sin to where they've learned, they've grown up in church, they know right from wrong, they know God's standards, they know what it is to, to be a Christian and to try and live that way. And I'm waiting, waiting, I'm sitting there waiting for the day when one of my daughters might say, oh, I don't know why I can't stop doing this. There I get to go. When that day comes, then I get to go, you know, honey, I think the reason that you keep messing up in this area, the reason that you keep struggling with this is because you have sin in your heart. And Jesus didn't come to just teach us how to be good people and how to obey and behave. Jesus came to fix the ultimate problem, which is our sinful hearts. And so did you recognize that when Jesus died on the cross, he died to pay for your breaking this commandment, this this law of God, but not only did he die to pay for that, your, the penalty of you breaking that commandment, but he died also that, so that God could send his spirit into you and give you a new heart. These things that you struggle with is because you have a sinful heart. And even though I love you and I delight in you and I, I think you're wonderful and I'm so proud of all the good things that you do, you're gonna keep on going back to sin because your heart is dead in it and you need to be made alive in Jesus Christ. And I hope for that day and I look for that day and I pray that God helps me be ready for that day. And right now, I love something I heard Matt Chandler say when he illustrates this, that, that he does everything he can to place the kindling around the heart of his children, hoping and praying and to try and be ready that someday God could light that fire. We have to recognize we can't save our kids. We can't reach in and change their heart. We can teach them. We can teach them the truth. We can model them faithful devotion to God. But ultimately, it's not up to us when their heart comes alive in Jesus Christ. And so we do everything we can. I'm, I'm trying to have conversations. I'm trying to be watchful. I'm trying to take advantage of moments and opportunities to go, here's a way, here's a moment I can plant a seed that I hope someday is gonna reap a harvest. And here's another opportunity to come back and water that same seed and pray that someday it's gonna reap a harvest. And then here's an opportunity over here for me to place kindling around their hearts. Wisconsinites understand campfires really well. You don't just take logs and, and stick a lighter on it. You're gonna be sitting there for a while. You've got to place kindling under it and hope that, that the Lord would come and light that fire. And that does something else too. It takes that burden off of us and goes, Lord, this, this is yours. God, I'm asking you to do what I can't do. Lord, help me teach. Help me model. Help me be faithfully devoted in my own life. But Lord, I'm asking you to light the fire. God, I'm asking you to save. I'm asking you to do the work that I cannot do. Amen? Continuing on back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and, you shall, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Here again, we see modeling that, that this, this law of God, the word of God is everywhere, not only in, it's in the home, but beyond that, what do you say? You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down 
And when you rise, this is being intentional and being opportunistic. See, to faithfully disciple our families, we need to be a blend of intentional and opportunistic. I'll say that one more time. To, be faith, or to faithfully disciple our families, we need to be a blend of intentional and opportunistic. How? To be intentional, we want to plan times of teaching, times of worship, times of prayer. This is where we plan these things. We're intentional about these things. Then to be opportunistic means we want to pay attention. We want to be alert, be aware, and think about Okay, God, when are you giving me opportunities? What's happening that I can turn into a teachable moment? This isn't we're going to sit down and teach and we're going to open Bible. This isn't we're going to designate times of prayer. This is going, man, we're out at soccer practice and something happened and it's a moment that I can sow a gospel seed. This is we're out at the store shopping and there's someone that I felt like the Lord put on my heart to pray for. So I'm going to pray for him. And then after we pray for him, I'm going to say, sweetheart, did you, you know why we did that? And take advantage of moments and opportunities. You know who did this best? It's the Sunday school answer. You can say it. Who do you think probably did this best? Jesus. Jesus faithfully modeled it. Jesus faithfully taught his disciples. We see times where he intentionally gathers his disciples, sits them down, and begins teaching them truth. And we see over and over, time and time again, where Jesus is living with his disciples, going to and fro in situations, in different circumstances, where something happens and Jesus capitalizes on it and makes it a teaching opportunity. Where he sees a fig tree that's alive and is in the season where it should be bearing fruit and it's not bearing fruit. And he goes, huh, cursed are you fig tree and it withers and dies. And the disciples are like, and he says, you know, guys, and he turns it into a teaching moment. There's another time where he sees a widow give her last mites, her tiny, small sum of money. She was poor and it's all she had. And Jesus sees that, and here's a moment, an opportunity for him to teach his disciples, actually, guys, she gave more than anyone else. She might not have gave hundreds or thousands like these, but she gave everything she had. He takes that moment and capitalizes on it to make it a teaching moment. We want to be a blend of intentional planning and opportunistic where we look for moments where God could use us to plant, to water, to sow seeds, to place kindling around the hearts of our children. When we sit in our house, when we walk by the way, when we lie down, when we rise, daily, every moment, every opportunity. I'll get to the point to where we're like, you know, sweetie? And they're like, well, you know, <laughs> drill it in. And as we said before, before you're trying to drill this in, evaluate, do I love the Lord with my, all my heart, all my soul? Would my kids be able to say, man, I, I know my parents love Jesus. Do we live in a way where our kids could see that and believe that and know that? Now, if you're here today and you are empty nest, and kids are out of the home, or whatever different circumstances where you might be feeling guilt and shame, where you might be wrestling with regret, 
of wasted opportunities and not being faithful in this, I wanna encourage you just to receive the grace and mercy of God. Repent, say, Lord, I, I repent. I'm sorry that I, that I wasted that season. Would you forgive me? And he will. And then say, what can I do now? How can I faithfully influence now? And I have heard story after story after story of praying parent and praying grandparent. I personally have praying friend. I was 26 years old, grew up in church, was doing all the professional Christian kid stuff, had everyone thinking I was awesome when I was a wicked sinner. 26 years old, God opens my eyes to my sin, confronts me with it, begins showing me truth from scripture. I recognize, I believe, a lot of error and he begins showing me truth. And I have a friend who stood in my wedding named Cody, burly man's man, hairy, tatted up, beard, just man's man. And I called and I'm like, hey man, I just wanna let you know what God's doing in my life. This is happening and I begin to realize that I believe some wrong things and God's showing me truth and he's confronted me with my sin. And Cody starts weeping on the other end of the phone. I've never seen or heard Cody cry before. I'm like, what was going on? I said, Cody, you all right? And he said, Maris, I've been praying for you for five years that God would open your eyes. I am so thankful for the prayers of my friend. And if you feel like you've wasted and neglected, yeah, repent and ask the Lord to forgive you and he will. And then you can pray, 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 trusting that the Lord can and will do what you cannot do, what you did not do, and still do what you cannot do. And then take advantage of moments and opportunities you have now to sow seeds still in the lives of your adult children and in the lives of your grandchildren and in the lives of people that God has brought into your family or into your circle of influence who you could be spiritual parents to. Being intentional, living, missional, recognizing, I was supposed to say it way earlier, but our bottom line for the week, maybe I did say it, who knows, is that the, fam the home is our first mission field. Before we go out to the byways and the highways trying to tell everyone about Jesus, which we should do, and before we go trying to win our coworkers, and before we go trying to be impactful in the community, which we should do, the home is our first mission field. That's why God gave the command, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Right, put these commands on your heart, let them be in your heart, and then straight out of that, teach them to your children. When you go about your way, when you lie down, when you're home, all times. God, I thank you. God, I thank you that you are the perfect father. As I am a sinner who's flawed and, and I make mistakes, I thank you for your grace and thank you for your mercy. God, I pray if there's anyone here today who is feeling condemnation, that you would remove that condemnation and that you would let the truth of your love and your grace and your mercy come in and fill their hearts with hope and rejoicing in Jesus Christ. God, I ask if there's anyone here today or anyone watching online that does not truly know you, that has not had that heart change that we're talking about, where you come in and change the stony, stubborn heart into a heart of flesh, tender and responsive to delight in doing your will. I ask today, Holy Spirit, that you would open their eyes. God, I ask right now that you would bring salvation. God, I ask right now that you would give repentance. God, I ask that you would give forgiveness. 
change our hearts, change each of us individually so that we could be faithful ambassadors to steward what you've given us with our time, with our money, with our resources, but especially, Lord, with our family, with our kids, with our relationships, that we could glorify and honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.